Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We have been talking about the supply chain crisis ever since the evergreen got stuck sideways in the Suez Canal, at least since then. And um, it's just gotten worse and worse and worse. We have an expert in the studio now to discuss um, what they're doing about it in the shipping sector. Greg Hewitt joins us, Chief Executive Officer of DHL Express USA. Greg, how does it look to you? Well, first of all, thank you for coming into the studio. Happy to be it's, here. Thanks it's so for great to me. have somebody in person uh, in the studio rather than over Zoom or over um, FaceTime or however we over the phone. Often we use the phone. Um, so it's good to have you in here. Uh, we're glad you could get in here. Can you still get stuff around the world in a timely manner or does it just cost more? How does the supply chain crisis look to you right now? I think if I look at what's happened through the pandemic, you've got first the capacity crunch in the aviation sector with commercial flights coming down, which creates a shortage, which in the early days, 2020, I say the early days of this pandemic, meant the goods flowed to ocean into fixed carriers like, like my company. I think you mentioned the Suez challenges and what's happened in the ports and all of a sudden capacity on the ocean this year has been constricted as business to business traffic came back. And so that's pushed an even more pressure on fixed networks like ours to handle that additional flow. I think what we've been able to do is make sure we've been consistently investing in aviation capacity, then in infrastructure like hubs and gateways to handle more pieces. And then of course, hiring people, couriers and terminal handling staff and CS people to manage that flow that I'm feeling confident that as peak comes in this year, we're gonna be able to handle our piece of the supply chain. But I think peak being still, Christmas or what? Peak, yeah. yeah, U.S. Thanksgiving through till the end of the year uh, is peak season for us. And we'll see about a 15% lift in volume, which isn't a crazy figure for us. We've seen years where it's been more. It's just the whole supply chain is backed up. And so I think if people could send more, they probably would. But because we've got capacity constraints in the air and through our hubs, we're just what's a record? It. What's a record for you in terms? I think of last increase? year we were over thirty to forty percent growth. It would have been one of the biggest mm. that we saw last year. If you think of the first year of the pandemic, you saw personal protective equipment and e-commerce boom. Yeah. This year, it's a bit of a shift. E-commerce is still strong, but we're seeing business to business come back. Semiconductor market, automotive sectors really booming. So a little bit heavier freight and bigger product. We think of. Porter's Five Forces, it's all about the pricing power of companies. Mm -hmm. How is your pricing power with your clients and able to pass that on to the consumer? Are you able to do so? Are consumers willing to absorb that? Well, I think that's what's been attractive in fixed network like ours. We haven't kind of moved to market-based pricing. We're in the ocean and in the air, you've heard 4X, 5X pricing and some even 10X. Because we've got a fixed network, we've been able to acquire either our own aircraft, our own capacity, some commercial lift in charters, and we've been able to blend that in. So I think our price point, although it's gone up, hasn't gone up astronomically, and that's why people are trying to, to move more with us. But you're maintaining margins. 
We are, yeah, we're maintaining our margin because we've been able to get more of that air forwarder traffic that probably didn't move with us before. So we take on that higher revenue shipment and that's helped balance out the higher cost in infrastructure and in people. We are seeing the wage rates go up higher on more of an inflationary path than it had historically and we're having to do that to battle for talent. Yeah, I we often hear about the battle for talent in trucks and I've always, for me, my fallback career and a really yep. like a, I've always romanticized being a long haul truck driver but it's not easy right to get your commercial license and it's not easy to operate those big rigs you need experience you can't just hire somebody off the street who doesn't know what he or she is doing what's the trucking situation look like for you guys well for us we've got a my business is more small package. I tend to fly stuff to places and then handle line hauls locally. We do have some long haul. Because you're faster. Because we're speed and we're small parcel delivery more so. We've been able to secure the trucking network to connect our network where we need it for the larger pieces, either through our own network or through trusted vendors. I think everybody's saying the same thing. There is a, we need frontline people, call them couriers, yeah. truckers. Uh, clerical staff and customer service and clearance, we're all looking for those people and how do you win them over? We do it by trying to build a culture that's a great place to work and combine that with the right wage rate, which is probably the harder or more dynamic thing to move as markets change. You need to stay with them. We've been able to continue to meet those. We're going to hire about 2,000 people for this period. We're about 80% there, so we're doing a good job at getting them in. I've heard others might be struggling with that, but I'm confident we'll have the people in place. And that sort of leads to the million-dollar question of, is it getting worse before it gets better, or are we already on the path to getting better? I think what people have asked me is, will it change dramatically soon? And I, I don't think so. I think where we felt that aviation capacity and ocean capacity would be back by now, we're now saying, I don't think in the first half of 2022, wow. it's going to recover and be back. So we're bracing for the continued need for some of that larger product to move on our fixed network. We're thinking more around this time next year, maybe some of the capacity is back and it blends out. And I think that's my message. We, we are carefully managing with our customers how much we can take. I can take 20% more than what you gave me, but I can't take 50 or 100. And I think some of what you would be hearing is the market, there is more demand. And so if, if we could, we, people would want us to take more, but we can't. And that's why we're keeping our pricing, I think, reasonable. Mm. And we're making our service commitments, allowing some growth, but not... Uh, infinite growth that some might see and what might have. What about market share? I mean, I'm just visiting here. I, I normally, I live in Berlin. So I get almost all my packages via DHL, as you can imagine, <laughs> right? FedEx, they do some documents and UPS, they work like two or three days a week. So it's my only choice pretty much. Here, it's a much more fragmented market, mm -hmm. right? What What's it look like in terms of competition? Well, I think all of it, if you look at what comes out through the investor groups for all of us, um, I think all of us are growing. And so I think where we've taken market share is probably on the freight forwarder side. The small forwarders who are struggling to get the capacity from commercial airlines, more of that product is moving to us. I tend not to know whether I'm taking it from the other guys or not. We're growing, growing faster than we had in the five years prior. All right, Greg, thanks so much for coming in. Really appreciate you joining it. Did you yeah, want to? No, I think just one of the big key takeaways is we've heard a lot of companies say it'll get better in the first half of 2022. And I think really smart points of this could be a longer than we thought and everyone yeah. should just sort of brace themselves. It's not going to be resolved in the first quarter. Right. No, I mean, I talk to um, the automaker CEOs all the time and they, 
Volkswagen, BMW, Daimler have all said it's going to get better throughout 2022, but it's going to be incremental. Yeah. It's not going to be like all of a sudden, oh, Q2 is here <laughs> and we have enough chips and ships and everything's cool. So it's uh, it's going to be a, a long, a drawn out process. Greg Hewitt, thanks so much for coming in. Really appreciate your time. Fascinating uh, topic in business. Greg Hewitt is the chief executive officer of DHL Express USA. get to the chip maker uh i'm just excited because kurt sievers is here in studio with us and because uh they deliver chips to some really important products uh they deliver chips to apple for example which i think we all uh love and use they deliver chips to robert bosch which helps make the abs and all the sensors that i need to run my motorcycles um kurt Talk to us about uh, what 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 the uh, supply chain bottleneck looks like right now in terms of your industry, in terms of your company. Yeah, so first of all, thanks for having me today. Um, I, I love to speak about the supply chain because in a way we look at this from a demand perspective, which is outstanding. So the supply chain is still such that the demand is outstripping supply capability. So while we are growing this year like 29% year over year, we are still supply limited. Uh, in our earnings call last week, we also informed more specifically that we continue to be uh, limited from a supply perspective in Q4. Uh, and I think, at least in parts of the business, this is going to continue probably through the most part of next year. It's interesting. I, I know we want to get to some of the supply outlooks, but from a demand perspective as well, analysts are saying that your 2024 revenue projections still look conservative, just given the demand from automotive. Matt's a big fan of automotive, industrial. Is that really the segments that you see carrying us through this big demand cycle? Yeah, you you got to think about NXP in a such a way that about three quarters of our overall revenue, which is $11 billion this year, is going into automotive and industrial. Mm -hmm. And it is going to Borg Warner, to Bosch, to, to the Daimler, tier one, exactly. to BMW. Exactly. Yeah. All ending up in cars, but we are shipping to tier one suppliers like the ones you, um, you just mentioned. That business is just booming like I've never seen it before in the past 25 years. Uh, to give you a feel, our automotive revenue this year, which is half of NXP, will grow about 45% year over year. Mm -hmm. Now you will say, well, that's a, that's a weak compare because last year, because of the pandemic, everything was low anyway. But it's also 30% above 2019. So even if you compare to a pre-pandemic year from a car production perspective, we ship 30% more. And it's still indeed not enough, as you said. Now, why is that? Um, it's just an explosion of content increase. Yeah. Uh, one reason is electric cars. I mean, we all see that there's really a sharp rise of, of, the, of the rate of electric cars. We think it's going to be almost 20% of the car production this year globally is going to be either hybrid or fully electric, which is a big number. I mean, it's becoming material. And that matters to us because they have about twice the semiconductor content to a combustion engine car. So this well, is this is where the chip demand is coming from. I mean, I was talking with Claudio Domenicali recently, who's the CEO of Ducati, and he was telling me the chip content is increasing at such a rate that sometimes there are parts he's not even aware need chips. For example, the headlights in his motorcycles now need chips because they're controlling the LED beams to turn in before yes. you turn a corner. So yes. Yes. it's amazing the amount of content that's going in. When does that stop? What, what, what's, the, um, we, what's the terminal rate there? I, 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 don't, I don't see a stop at all because all the big mega trends which are driving innovation in automotive, and those are electrification, autonomy, 
think about the whole idea about autonomous cars and safer cars, so all these assistance systems which are actually protecting you from, from bad accidents, and the connected car, the whole idea that your car is actually getting software updates over the air or that your car can, be, can get better performance through software updates. All of those innovation streams rely uniquely on semiconductors. So no, I actually don't see that ending. I would actually say a car in the, in the next 10, 15 years is just becoming more and more silicon on wheels. Talk to us about the supply side of the equation. I know here in the US, the Biden administration has talked a lot about um, bringing more chips to being manufactured domestically, trying to protect that supply chain. But will it ramp up fast enough? How do you see that supply and, and if there is any issues here in the US? I, I think the, the entire government initiative is fantastic. So I've been part of this right from the start. I think we started in, in April with the White House summit under the leadership of Joe Biden. And I, I re also from a global perspective, I like the fact that the US is very proactive mm -hmm. to address this problem. I think the CHIPS Act with the 52 billion dollar uh, uh, bill is is gonna make a difference now is it fast enough no it, mm -hmm. it just can't be fast enough it takes three years to build a chip factory uh, yet if you don't start today it's not going to be there in three years so that's why uh, since this is a structural move as we just discussed I mean th these are not like short-term spikes from a demand perspective but it's very sustainable for that reason, I think it does make sense. Uh, we have three large facilities here in the US, so we have two big wafer fabs. So wafers are the, where the silicon comes out, uh, in, uh, in Austin, Texas, and one in Arizona. Uh, and we really think it's the right way to address the problem, to look at domestic production and try to boost it as much as we can. Now, again, it's not gonna be fast enough if you think about tomorrow morning's supply challenge, but it will be good for the supply challenges of the of the next five years. I think it's also interesting. It says a lot about the competitiveness of those states that you put your wafer fabs there. But we don't have time to go into that. Kurt, thanks so much for joining us. Kurt Sievers, Chief Executive Officer of NXP Semiconductors. Let's talk about what's going on in these markets. Anders Persson joins us, Chief Investment Officer of Global Fixed Income at Nuveen. And um, Anders, in terms of what we see in rates today, it's been pretty, uh, well, not just today, over the last um, few days, it's been pretty interesting. Does the U.S. 10-year 156, uh, 157 make sense to you, given um, uh, CPI at 6.2% year over year? Yeah, thank, thanks, Matt. Um, yeah, I would say uh, I would say that it makes a lot more sense now than it did at least uh, earlier in the week or even last week. We think that the rally last week uh, really was, really overdone in our mind. The yields were kind of moving too lowly, uh, too low, and at this point, kind of catching up a bit with the CPI and, and even the 30-year auction. So, so generally, our view is the yields are still going to be grinding higher, and, and we're expecting something like 175 of the 10-year later this year. So we, we still feel like there's room for yields to continue to move higher on the 10-year but I think there's a lot of technical factors still mm -hmm. impacting treasuries more broadly, a lot of cross-currents going on. So, so some of these near-term moves that we've been seeing is just kind of the market having to digest a lot of the different data points coming through, and then the different technicals uh, that are playing in, in, in a factor as well. So 
I would expect still volatility here for, for the next few months as we're kind of shifting through all these uh, cross currents. And I'm glad that you brought up the technicals because I think a lot of market participants have been confused why we're still at a 150 roughly on the 10 year and below 2% on 20s and 30s. And a lot of this has been, um, as you say, technical factors. When do you expect those to um, fall down a little bit and yields to rise, reflecting more of the fundamental data that you describe? Yeah, no, I, I think it's going to take a little bit more time here. I think, you know, we're still at very unprecedented times with central banks and obviously the Fed being incredibly involved in the markets. And, and the tapering is, is obviously top of mind from all investors. And, and that uh, is going to be, I think, the key factor to start uh, that normalization that you're kind of referring to in my mind. So as we're moving into the tapering kind of top phase here over the next several months, um, some of that, you know, unprecedented kind of type low levels that we've been seeing should be starting to unwind. So it's a little bit of that supply demand aspect of it. But um, I don't think it's going to happen, you know, overnight. We saw in the 30-year auction earlier this this week that, um it's, it's still a pretty rocky environment. The street had to take down a big portion of that and, and had the longest tails in 2011. So it's really, you can really still tell that there's uh, a lot of moving parts and a lot of tactical factors that I think will take some time, probably several months before we kind of work through that. What are you expecting in terms of uh, corporate issuance in this environment? I mean, does it, uh, do, you, do you see them still running out to raise as much as they can? Yeah, we, we're expecting still a, a very healthy uh, corporate issuance, both on the investment grade side and the high yield side, perhaps not at, at the levels that we've seen year to date, because a lot of the companies uh, naturally been able to take advantage of the lower rates, kind of locking in some nice coupons and, and kicking that maturity wall out, uh, which we think is healthy. But as companies are now shifting towards a little bit more comfortable around expanding and spending CapEx and thinking through you know, the next phase, there's going to be some some uh, funding needs from that perspective as well. So I think we're going to have a little bit better balance perhaps uh, going into 2022. But uh, generally, we would expect uh, still a, a quite an active new issuance um, uh, pace going into next year. And when you take a look at the Bloomberg terminal, I'm just taking, taking a look at investment grade spreads over treasuries. I mean, you're still at a really tight 87 basis points, high yield, just 280 basis points in spread over treasuries. Is that sound fundamentally strong to you? Or is a lot of this FOMO and yield seeking because there's nowhere else to get yield in this market? I would say there, there's a little bit of both. Uh, we've kind of talked about the markets at these levels not being particularly exciting from a spread perspective, but we do think they're going to be holding up. We talked about, you know, markets being sort of priced for reality, not priced for perfection. The reality is that we are seeing very strong fundamentals. Economic growth uh, is healthy. The falls are expected to be record lows, uh, around 1%, uh, perhaps even lower. So, I do think that we do have a lot of factors that are playing in that are justifying where we are from, from uh, current levels. Um, that being said, I think just the fact that we have low yield environment across the globe uh, continues to be the main driver of investors reaching for yield. So our, our expectation is that 
this kind of uh, carry trade uh, will continue and, and be an attractive way to playing uh, fixed income and continue to be more comfortable taking corporate cris- uh, credit risk over treasuries. And we're also comfortable kind of dipping down to the lower quality parts of, of, of the credit markets. Anders, thanks so much for joining us today. Anders Person there, Chief Investment Officer of Global Fixed Income at Nuveen, talking to us about the rate situation and his inflation outlook as well. Let's get over right now to Frank's, uh, Frank Holmes. Joining us, as I had said before, he is the Chief Investment Officer as well as the CEO at U.S. Global Investors. And we're going to talk about um, some of the ETF, some of the hot products and the Jets ETF is one that I want to start with as we reopen um, and get back to normal life again. What do you think about uh, travel and the consumer? Well, I think uh, we're going to have a a huge surge in in travel with the November 8th allowing Europeans to fly in without being stuck in Mexico City or Canada for two weeks. I recently flew to Sweden full flight going over, half empty coming back. I flew to Dubai last week, and same thing, full flying over, half empty coming back. Now I think it is wide open, especially coming into Thanksgiving and the Christmas season. Uh, we're going to have a huge inbound from Europe. Interesting, though, about the health of the consumer as well. In many cases, they've said that the consumer is at least some of them, more wealthy now than they were before the pandemic. And that pent-up demand and that willingness to travel is in full force. How are you thinking about that as well when you think about the consumer? Absolutely. Just take a look at hotel rates in New York City. Uh, It's just amazing to see uh, how the price tag has gone up dramatically. And we look at Florida, we look at um, Southwest is flying from Phoenix to Cabo St. Lucas uh, in Mexico uh, for tourism. So there's no doubt uh, tourism is robust in Las Vegas uh, and right across the nation. So I think we're going to see big travel. Uh, Everyone in the northern states, particularly in the U.S., uh, being able to find new locations in the south. And the same thing I'm told is happening in Europe. There's a couple of new airlines that have been created, like Breeze, this year. Mm. And that's predominantly for the tourists and for the yeah. person who wants to get out of cold weather and fly south. In fact, Deutsche Telekom, uh, the German incumbent, today said it expects a better full-year uh, profit than previously because European tourists are moving around country to country, roaming rates are going up, and it's making bigger margins. There is still, though, a supply and demand mismatch. I mean, on the good side, you see that. But, Frank, you brought it up in terms of the flights coming back are empty. And I know um, I just flew in here from Berlin on a on a half-empty flight. And um, the products that I need aren't quite there yet, the, the, the legs that I need. Um, how long do you think that's going to take to work out? Because we're almost at Thanksgiving. Yes. Uh, I think that uh, anecdotally, I was at Target the other day, and they said, buying Christmas lights or any things you want to buy them now, we have nothing to replace until the new year. Uh, so inventory is very tight. So it's interesting, you know, the, for jets, uh, we've had huge inflows this past week with this November 8th date on the expectations of bigger travel. Uh, and when I created the jets, it was because I noticed back six years ago that there was a, uh, a huge pricing power. The airlines were uh, raising their prices and they had all these ancillary fees. <clears throat> 
and they did take off before uh, COVID. Well, what I'm noticing now is the cargo. Cargo were the best performing airlines during the crisis, and they've come out of it making huge increases in their fees uh, for high blockchain, which I'm the chair of, uh, getting equipment from Japan and uh, sorry, and China and South Korea, uh, flying over to Europe. It's it, the cost is up tenfold. Uh, yeah, we just talked to the, CH, the CEO of DHL USA, who was telling us the freight forwarding uh, margins are, are making his business this year. Absolutely. So we're launching a new ETF called C and it's Sea to Sky, and, and uh, it's and it's eighty percent dry ships and. Um, uh, 20% uh, airlines, just cargo, because I believe we're going to live with this inflation for the next three years. It's just not going to quickly resolve itself. All right. So I'm going to steal the classic Matt Miller question. When we hear higher inflation, the recent narrative has said, oh, maybe Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies are the new inflationary hedge. Maybe they're replacing gold as a store of value. And then you see crypto and Bitcoin fall a little bit today, despite some of the higher inflationary figures that we've gotten. How are you thinking about crypto as a store of value, as an inflationary hedge? Didn't you, did you hear Frank just say blockchain? I thought I heard him say That's blockchain. That's why I yes. just queued up my next question. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, you know, years ago, four years ago, I couldn't uh, create an ETF and it's still not been done where you could buy Bitcoin, Ethereum. So I launched Hive Blockchain Technology, which is the first crypto mining company. And what I did see, and for the reason for that, is because it's all over the world. Like Bloomberg Television, Bloomberg Radio is everywhere. Well, investing in crypto is everywhere. Investing in stocks is not everywhere. Uh, Sold-out conferences in Miami, in Berlin, uh, in, in Paris, in London, England, and Singapore. Um, so I think that the crypto concept and Bitcoin as a store of value no doubt has huge legs to it. Uh, and it also has a huge demographic shift in the next 25 years. Baby boomers like myself will be transferring 25, it was $10 trillion to uh, Generation XY and millennials. And uh, they're all used to digital, digital money. I grew up with monopoly money. They grew up with digital money from gaming. So I do think there's a big shift, uh, and I do think that Bitcoin uh, is becoming a store of value. But you really can't wear it unless it looks like gold. So gold is the important part about gold is gold jewelry, and 60% of all demand for gold is for love. And it's highly correlated to rising GDP per capita in India and China and the Middle East. So I think that gold is the big lagging trade here in the next couple of months. It's way undervalued on a relative basis. It's uh, done quite well point. over the last week. I mean, it, I think it came down a little bit today. Let me just pull up XAU uh, here. And the thing is, gold is also you can have an ETF um, powered by the underlying with gold. And you can't have that yet with Bitcoin, at least not in the U.S., you need electricity for your Bitcoin to be functioning. Uh, for gold, uh, like when in Dubai, right at the airport, you can get 24 karat gold jewelry and you pay by the gram by the different designers. Uh, and you can convert it to cash. So I think that uh, in a big part of the world outside of the U.S., uh, gold is treated both as jewelry and love uh, and money. Frank, great talking to you uh, as always. 
um, real pleasure getting your uh, insight and also to talk about these um, products that you've created and the business that, that you've created. Um, pretty impressive. Frank Holmes, CEO and CIO at U.S. Global Investors, talking to us about his ETF uh, products as well as his take on the market and inflation hedges. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.